Good morning. Everybody stand up, please. Thank you for that. Welcome, family, on the internet and the homes. We love you all, with you in spirit. I'm just giving everybody here a chance to stretch their legs because we had a pretty long worship service, so stretch them out for just a minute. I've got a pretty uh, decent amount of content here, so I want you to be okay with it. Let's just lift up our hand to the Lord and ask Him to encounter us with His Word. Father, we come here not to play church, not to hear something that's going to make us feel good even. We come here to hear Your voice and to have Your Word implanted and grafted inside of us so it can live and produce fruit. Lord, I pray that you would do that this morning by your Holy Spirit, that you would come, Holy Spirit, come, teacher of the church. Teach us from your word. Engraft that word inside of our spirits that we would be changed and not leave the same. We're not coming here to burn time because we're bored. We're coming here because we're gathering together as one people with one heart and one passion, with one Lord that we want to magnify. And so we pray that you would come and have your way here this morning. And we say yes in our heart to whatever you say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you. I'm having flashbacks of the earlier days of Heart of the Father gathering in different places. Jeremiah, about how many people are here now that were, what was our place then? Maybe Waring Road? Uh, South Pipkin, yeah, something like that. We had some great, great meetings in South Pipkin that went on for hours and hours. You guys think we have long services here sometime? That was nothing. We went on for a long time then. Worship would continue on for sometimes a couple hours afterwards. So, um, Willie, glad you're here. You weren't here then, but now, now you are, so praise God. Um, I spoke a few weeks ago a message entitled, Giving Jesus What He Wants. And in this season with this COVID-19, obviously lots has been stirred up. If you watched the video that we sent out as elders, you know that I'm carrying now a burden in my heart, what I believe the Lord is saying and what He's wanting to do in His body. And I want to kind of share that, and I want to pick up where I left off with giving Jesus what He wants. The title of my message this morning is Getting God's Heart for His Body. This is ultimately important. There's a plague out there now. And the mandate that we've been given, the instruction that we've been given from the government is to stay away from each other. But I want to tell you there's a plague in the body of Christ that's sweeping through. The enemy is dominating a lot in the Western church. And the answer to that is not staying away, but it's actually becoming one. That's the answer to the plague that's sweeping the church. I don't know about you, but I carry in me all the time, and it Sometimes it fluctuates in intensity. It's pretty intense right now. But I carry inside of me a groan and a longing for Jesus to come and have his way in this body and pour out his spirit in a magnificent and beautiful way. I'm thankful for all that the Lord has done and is doing in heart of the Father. But I know in my heart, just like you do, that there's more that the Lord wants to do. And there's an outpouring of his spirit. And I feel in my heart that we're poised for him to pour that out. But so I asked the probing question last time, what if we spend our whole life 
cooking apple pies for Jesus, only to find out when we stand before him that he says, oh, you know what? I really didn't like apple pie. And I want to ask this question this morning and have us ponder it. What if God is waiting to pour out his power and full purposes at Hot FM until we demonstrate that we have a wineskin that can contain it without bursting? What if God is waiting to pour out the fullness of his spirit and of his heart and his purpose here in this body? until we demonstrate to him that we have a wineskin that can contain it and hold it. I want to speak to you and tell you truly that one of our the curses in Western culture, Western society, and especially in the church in the West, is our radical individualism. We think of our relationship with God in terms of our own time. We think of our relationship with God in terms of our own Bible study, our own prayer time. Nothing wrong with that. We should have those things. We think of our relationship with God and our, in, in our gathering together, that we come together, we have meetings on Sunday and then and Wednesday night occasionally, and then we go apart and we live our radically individualistic life. And I want to tell you that's not the picture and the dream of Jesus. In John 17, we looked at the verses where he said, he's giving his life not for distancing, but for our oneness and the flow. And I believe this with all my heart. I pondered this. If you've been around charismatic circles or Pentecostal circles for any amount of time, you know this language of wineskin is out there. Lord, what does the wineskin look like? And we're thinking about what the external form is that we can create so that God can pour out his spirit. And that's not what it is. It's a relational form. It's a bond of unity between believers where there's a true spirit of love Oneness, same focus that holds together through thick and through thin. I've had a passion for decades for revival history. I love it. I teach it at Maranatha School. And if I had to characterize the story of revival history, it would be this. It's largely the story of beautiful houses being built without solid foundations. And it's largely the story of extravagant and beautifully aged wine with wonderful bouquet that's poured into wineskins that burst. That's, that's the history of revival. Why? Because the foundational issues were not in place to be able to contain what God wanted to pour out. And so it ended up in destruction. That story has been repeated over and over and over again. I love to see what God has done. I love the impact that he has. I love the miracles that he does. I like the power of him sweeping through communities and sweeping in the unsaved. I love that. I love the creative miracles that I read about. Azusa Street, one of my favorites. It is the birthplace of almost every Pentecostal and charismatic that lives today. That is in your DNA. It came out of Azusa Street, out of that revival. So many beautiful things happened. The glory of God showed up in such a way that the cloud of glory was in the place up to the waist for most meetings, and children would actually hide underneath it and play hide-and-seek because the glory of God was in there like smoke. This is where the first occurrence that I've heard of where fire came on top of the building and the fire departments literally rushed there to put out the fire and went inside and goes, actually, that's, 
not a real fire. It's a spiritual fire burning. Where when people got off at the train station one to two miles away from the church, conviction would be so heavy because God's presence was covering the whole area. They would get out of the cars of the trains and get down on their knees on the, at the train station and repent. One story told of William Seymour. A man came in who had been in an accident and his arm was severed at the shoulder. Gone. Seymour called him up and Seymour's character was that he would, his pulpit was peach crates that were stacked on top of each other and he would put his head inside of the crate and just pray and they would wait on God. When he pulled his head out of the peach crate, he felt like he had a word from the Lord. He went over to this man who had a severed arm and he said, I feel like the Lord says he wants to have a, a good time tonight. He prayed for that man in the presence of hundreds of witnesses. And they watched God grow a complete arm from his shoulder all the way down to his hands and fingers. He went back to the place where he had worked and brought back 200 of the employees there that knew him. There's, there's an ache and a groan inside of me that's real. Sometimes it makes me cranky. Sometimes it makes me hangry. Sometimes it makes me agitated because I know, Lord, there's more than what we're seeing. Come, Jesus, come. What are we lacking? What are we waiting for? And what if the answer is he's waiting for us to actually lay down our individualistic lives Get in the right kind of community and love relationship with each other that's not just surface, but it actually goes to the core. And have a wineskin that won't burst when he pours out what he wants to do and won't destroy us. Because the history of revival, if you're not aware of it, most churches throughout history that have hosted revival have been destroyed by it. Walked through the church at Brownsville not long ago where the revival was there. Magnificent. Walked through there. Brother was taking us through that. It was basically, you know, it was empty. And we walked through a section. He said, oh, you have to forgive us. This section is warm. We have an air conditioning unit that's gone out there, and we don't have the money to repair it. I'm just saying, it, it, it grieves me. What does the Lord want? What did Jesus die for? What did he pray for in John 17 right before he walked out of the building and went to Gethsemane? Father, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may be one together, that the world will know that you've sent me. There's a power that comes out of a oneness of community. And, and can I tell you, we haven't arrived at that yet. But we have to see that as the goal. This is the thing that Jesus gave his life for. Are we moving in that direction? My observation recently with this COVID thing is that our our center is around our own opinion about what we should be doing. There's a poem that I love. I'm rambling a little bit now. But it's called The Six Men of Hindustan. And it's about six blind scholars who went to see the elephant to study it. Blind, no? The first approach to the elephant, happening to fall upon his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl. Why, bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. His own perspective of what it was. And the next one takes the trunk, and he says, oh, man, it's like a snake. 
The next one takes the tail and says, it's like a rope. The next one takes the ear and says, no, you're stupid. The elephant's like a fan. And the end of that is, and so these men of Hindustan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, and each was partly in the right, but all were in the wrong. I've got all the reasons why this or why that. Okay. Why are we gathering? Why are we not gathering? I, I get it. I'm okay with all of that. I feel like we should be tolerant and in love. But what I'm seeing across the body of Christ in my heart, not just for heart of the Father, but for the body of Christ as a whole, when are we going to get in a place where we really love each other intensely? So we don't have to prove our opinion and make everybody else believe it. Let me know, Derek, if I get too edgy. Because I feel hangry right now. So Seymour, 1906, this is a revival begin. April 9th, 1906 is a big date. It's on all my exams for revival history. Revival breaks out Azusa Street. Powerful things happen. Amazing things happen. One of the beautiful things that happened at Azusa was that there was no race divide. In the country then, in the early 1900s, the country was still largely divided by race. Lots of prejudice, lots of laws in place that were segregate, you know, segregation laws. But there at Azusa Revival, this was the famous phrase that Frank Bartleman put out. The race line, the color line has been washed away in the blood. And so black and white, Asian, everybody's worshiping together. There was one heart and one goal that everybody was seeking. Not to validate their own position and their own culture, but Jesus. We've got to have you, Jesus. Whatever you want, Jesus. Whoever you want to do it through, Jesus. We just have to have you, Jesus. And that was the one passion. It was beautiful. God inhabited that place. He made his habitation at Azusa in a powerful way. Here's what happened. They had in their leadership multiracial, multiethnic leaders, Whites, blacks, Asians, women, men. 1908 was a turning point in Azusa. What happened? William Seymour got married. He married a worship leader at Azusa named Jenny Moore. And when he married Jenny, some of the leaders on the group got mad at him. They felt like he violated... 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul said, it's better if you remain as I am and unmarried because then you can give all of your energies to serving the Lord. And they felt like that Seymour had sold out. And so they got mad. And two of the ladies, two white ladies, they took the mailing list from Azusa, which was the lifeblood of their publication and of their finance around the world, had a massive mailing list. That's where they got all their finance, and that's where they got the contacts and spread the news of Azusa. They took it. They went to Portland, Oregon. They started another apostolic faith there, and they changed their address on there to theirs. Seymour and his wife went up there to ask them, please. He was a very humble man. He said, please give us our mailing list back. And they said, no. 
And so Seymour went back to Azusa without the mailing list. And their finances dried up. Their publication dried up. And the people coming from around the world dried up. And the revival basically died a year later. I have in my study a copy of the manual for ministers in the apostolic faith movement that Seymour founded. Seymour himself wrote it. This was not too much later. This was in 1915 when they began to bring in ministers and they had this official organization. That's about the same time, 1914, is when the Assemblies of God started. So all these Pentecostal denominations are happening. Do you know what they all were? In Seymour's manual for ministers, it's said in there that you cannot be a minister in the apostolic faith unless you're black. All of the denominations that formed after that mighty revival where God had washed away the color line in the blood because of hurt and woundedness and because there wasn't a strong enough foundation of relationship there to maintain it, and opinions divided them, every denomination that formed was essentially either black or white. Still to this day, largely true. I don't know about you. That hurts my heart. And I think, do we even know what we're praying for when we pray God send revival? Do we think... Just lift up your hand if I get too edgy, okay? I feel this deep in my heart. Do we think that we're ready relationally to be a wineskin that can hold what God pours out without separating and bursting apart? I want to suggest to us that we have work to do and that we should pursue that. Pursue peace. Pursue love and the things that cause for the binding together and the oneness of the people of God. We're supposed to pursue those things. Love is the greatest. Recently, I'm meditating on 1 Corinthians 13. We've heard it 50 or 100 times at weddings if you've been around very long. Love is patient. Love is kind. But what struck me this time when I was just meditating on that passage was that biblical love can really only be demonstrated where there's some level of relational tension. I'd never seen that before. You go, what do you mean? Love isn't really show as being love in a perfect world where everybody's happy and nice, and we just all like each other. Love only shows itself in reality, in depth, and in power where there's tension in relationships. So here's a meditation that I was doing just writing this stuff down. I got convicted. Can I tell you? The first thing on the list is patient. It's not my strong suit. I might even be void in that suit. I don't know. I told Diane I was going to get a checkup at Watson Clinic this last week, and when I drove in the parking lot, I felt convicted when it said patient parking because I thought, I can't park there. (laughs) Patient. This is what love is. I only need patience when you are wearing me out. This is what you're doing. This is what I want you to do. 
My kindness is best seen in the context of your inconsideration and neglect. That's when it shines. Not jealous. Victory over jealousy can only happen when you have position or possessions that I want but don't have. You, you see there, Paul understood. This is the beauty of the guy who's the wise master builder. We want to have the blueprints and all this stuff. From my perspective, what the apostles were passionate about, Paul emphasized over and over again in his letters was, this is not negotiable. We have to be one. And so he's constantly fighting to do away with the divisions and those things that are causing people to pull apart in the body. It's not okay. Because now you're not going to be able to hold what God's pouring out, what he wants to. Apostles always chase after unity, and they always promote it in a strong way. I see that in the New Testament. Let's go on down this list. There's 13 things here. Um, real quick, love does not brag. That means that even though I feel unnoticed and unappreciated by you, I will not try to make myself feel better by self-promoting or by putting you down. You see the tension. Love does not act unbecomingly. That's rudeness. What is the temptation there and what is the pressure? It, because you get under my skin. but I choose to embrace instead if I love. How many ever have anybody get under your skin? In the church? In your family? In your life? This is where love shines. This is the demonstration that love is something that's supernatural. Jesus said this is going to be a demonstration to everybody that I'm alive and that I'm real. What is it? Something supernatural is happening because this hangry guy up here is actually not responding in kind to me, but doing kindness. Does not seek its own means I overcome the natural tendency and gravity in my life that causes me to choose my own comfort over your need. How many ever choose your own comfort over the needs of others around you? Okay, let's go back to lying again. is not provoked. That means you irritate me. But I choose not to put my frustration on display. Does not take into account a suffered wrong. That means that you hurt me. But I choose to release the offense and not hold it against you so we can move forward in relationship. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness or injustice. That shows me that it's not always my first response to run to your side and help you when you're being treated wrongly. Ever find that to be true? How many get outraged when you're treated wrong sometimes or you're, you're falsely accused? Come on, you guys. We can be honest here. We're family, right? Bears all things means that in order to really love you, I must enter into your life and help bear your burdens financially, emotionally, and spiritually. Believes all things means that my default is to assume that your motives are pure, even though there could be reasons to question them. Hopes all things means that my ambition for your highest good is unwavering no matter how many times you fail. Endures all things means that it is difficult to stay in close relationship with you. But because we are in the same family and bound to each other in covenant, 
I will not give up on you. There is no such thing in heaven's sight as comfortable love or convenient love. There is no such thing as comfortable love or convenient love. Love is always measured in sacrifice. I've been kind of rocked and convicted lately by a book that I'm reading. It's called True Fellowship by Art Katz. And so I'm going to read you a little bit of what he said there. It's one of those books where I wonder why I highlighted it at all because I have entire pages that are highlighted. Like, what? I should have just highlighted the things that I didn't want to go back and review again. So let me read you this and see if this strikes you at all. In the daily life of the community, conducting our lives on a daily basis in close proximity to others guarantees that there will be tensions, misunderstandings, individual quirks, struggles, and differences of opinion. Our disrespect for one another, our innate selfishness, and insidious self-justifications are all revealed. It is a painful but necessary revelation of our hearts. Do not measure your love for God by your rapturous euphoria in an imagined relationship with the Lord that has been stimulated by choruses and worship. That would be a deception. Our supposed love for God is tested to the full by how much love we show for the brethren. In the wisdom and genius of God, we are saved from insisting. So good. In the wisdom and genius of God, we are saved from insisting that we can enjoy an exclusive relationship with God while at the same time live separated from the community. It's not possible. If you say you love God whom you have not seen but don't love your brother who you have seen, you are a... You are a... Liar, John said. Holy Spirit said that. If we cannot endure a seeming rejection or if we find ourselves reacting in a touchy and hypersensitive manner, how then are we going to be overcomers in the crisis time of the last days when the wrath of the powers of darkness will be ventilated against God's people in a concentrated way? That is a legitimate question. A good definition of much of present Christendom is that we want the sense of the power and the gifts of God, but without the cross of God. If we have protective little self-centered egos underlying an outward appearance of spirituality, we will find ourselves constantly hurt. But better to recognize that now and to submit to the sanctifying work of God in an environment of true fellowship. So good. How many hate that quote right now? You already hate it. Praise God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to preach the book of 1 Corinthians a little bit. And I want to show you how much value and weight God puts on our oneness. It is the central issue in every church. I'm telling you, not from man's standpoint. From man's standpoint, the central issue in every church is, are things going okay? Do we have enough money? Are the services going good? Is everybody more or less happy? That's not from God's perspective. He wants to know that there's true oneness happening there. And he's never satisfied until there is. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 4 through 13, I want to read. And then we're going to go to some really weighty passages in chapter 3 and 11. 
1 Corinthians 1, 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into the fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, after his introduction, he goes straight for the jugular. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So the big issue comes out in the introduction. What I'm really going after here, I believe God's working in your midst. Obviously, you have every good gift. But what's happening now is endangering everything that the Lord wants to do ultimately. And we cannot have that. We have to deal with that now. I hear there's divisions among you. That's point number one. We have to deal with that because everything else hinges on that point. That's a huge issue. And then go to chapter 3 and verse 1. So what was the issue of division that was happening in chapter 1? What does he say there? They were dividing over what? Over their favorite preacher. I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. But there were divisions that were happening because they each had their own, hello, strong opinion. Oh, no, Paul, he's terrible as a preacher. Apollos, he can preach. Now, that guy can preach. He can teach. Paul, not really so much. Actually causing divisions in the body. Those opinions were being wedges that were separating their relational strength, and he wasn't having it. Chapter 3, verse 1, let's read through 7 here. I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? Hello, Internet. Hello, Internet. Hello, Facebook. I'm seeing a full-blown display of carnality in the name of Jesus before my eyes. Full-blown. For when one says... I'm of Paul, another, I'm of Apollos. Are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? Hear this. What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. If you're not anything, what are you? Nothing. Paul is nothing, the mighty apostle who got caught up into heaven. He's nothing. You know what he is? He's a glove that the hand of the Son of God can go in and do things. But apart from the hand, he's nothing. 
Oh, no, but I'm going to, you don't know that ministry, man. You need to hear this. You need to see this clip on YouTube. This guy's awesome. This is what you're doing. This is what I want you to do. Go down to verse 16. This is so weighty. Do you not know that you, that's a plural word in the Greek. He's talking about the church, the body, the ecclesia there in Corinth. Do you not, that, not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. You what? You're rallying around your favorite preachers and causing division in the body, and you're in danger of God destroying you? You, you what? Paul's going like this, and I wish we could get this. The temple of God is holy. You don't understand what it is. It is what houses the very presence and person and power of God himself. That is your relationship together. You all together are that temple. If you tear that apart and destroy it, the work of God is going to be destroyed, and you're going to be judged for it. That's weighty. That makes me want to weigh my words very carefully. I don't know how you can spin that. How do you spin that verse? If anyone destroys the temple of God, God's going to destroy him. You can't spin that. That's just heavy weightiness. If we could realize in our hearts how precious, how important, and how valuable the community connections are, we would live a lot different than we do. Come on, no amens. I know this is a little weighty. I want it to be. I feel like the Lord wants us to feel the weightiness of what we do and what are we doing? God's trying to build a place where he can inhabit in his fullness. And we're going to divide over our opinion about stinking preachers that are nothing. Sorry. I'm edgy in my heart. I'm not angry. I'm hungry. I want God to have his way. I know that the power of God is not manifest in our midst the way that God wants to do it. I know that. I'm not stupid. The only way that I know to get there, we can't create anything, can we? We're going to create it. We're not going to. What we can do is to demonstrate to God that we are going to be a people that are so relationally in love with each other, regardless of the difficulties of walking in love and relationship, that we're so bound together, that we're so in unity around the person of Jesus Christ and his mission that we can lay down all of the lesser things to maintain that oneness that Jesus died to purchase. Over and over again, I could take you through verse after verse. The scripture teaches Jesus died to tear down all of the walls of division. He died to make of the two, Jew and Gentile, into one. He died for this. The question is, are we giving it to him? Are we partnering with what he died for? 
Or are we going along saying, God, come and move the place, save the sinners, heal the sick, create arms from the uh, shoulder down. God, come and do this. Let's see the glory cloud. And he's going, what, what are you giving me to inhabit and abide in? No, but we just want to go home and have our own life after that because we have things to do and people to see and, and, and bills to pay and all of that. And, and everybody wants to be part of something great as long as it doesn't cost too much. And that's what we have to decide. We really do. In you, your life and my life, there are so many deep rivers and bents of individualism that hinder God's Spirit from building us into a community. From the time I was a little kid, I've told you this, I always liked being by myself. I'd be 10 years old, and I would go out. Literally, my mom was like, where were you? I was just laying on the grass looking at the clouds for the last three hours. She's like, are you okay? No, I just like being by myself. So then the Lord started to cure me because he gave me a wonderful wife, and then he gave us seven children. Not all at once, praise God. And he said, I want to cure you of your need and of your demand to have your own space. And then he gave me a business where I talk on the phone just about 24-7 and where I get 50 texts and 50 phone calls a day where I'm constantly driving and talking. I've got three yellow pads just like this on my truck all the time where I'm running three different lists. My kids are like, when they're little, Daddy, wow, that's amazing. You can drive with your knee and still take notes and listen on the phone like that. He's trying to cure us of our need and our demand for having our own individualistic life. I'm saying this, this, is, this, is, this is the New Testament. If anyone destroys the temple of God by division... This was preached in my early days of Pentecost that that meant if you smoked, God was going to kill you. <laughs> no, you kill yourself if you smoke. What God's upset about is not your smoking. He's upset about you causing division. You're treating the body of Christ like it's a pie. Let's cut it into pieces. This is Paul. This is Apollos. No, it's not like that. It's a living baby. You can't cut it in pieces. You kill it. If we could grasp that we're holy as a community, Paul said, don't you know? You are the holy temple carrier container building that houses the very presence and power and person of God himself. That's who you are. Don't you know that? And if you go parsing that and cutting it up the way that you want to, you're going to be in a bad place with God. I repent for all of the times in my life that I have been an agent of division and not one of unity, where I cared more about my own stinking opinion than I did about the love of the brethren. I've been repenting lately. God, make me an agent of this oneness. I want everybody to sign up. 
I, I want you to sign up today. I really do. I want you to sign up to be an agent of the oneness that God's heart is after. I'll read you another quote by Art Katz if you can take it. Can you take it? Are you doing all right? Is everybody all right? Are you all right with my intensity and my hangriness? Okay, here we go. Here's Art Katz. The body of Christ is an eternal masterpiece. And I do not think we have sufficiently appreciated God's intention for it, nor have we shown much of the respect and esteem that the body rightly deserves. That is so true. We do not esteem Christ in his people, nor do we esteem the variety of God's people with all their inherent differences. We're selective and more responsive and partial to those who are like ourselves. And consequently, we miss seeing the fullness of Christ in his body. The Spirit was never given for us to do great acts that would distinguish us as individuals. Hear this. So good. The Spirit was never given for us to do great acts that would distinguish us as individuals. He was sent to be the power and enablement for the corporate life together, out of which those acts would then flow freely. We stand in danger of taking something very holy and making it very commonplace and valueless. It makes me want to cry. Because it is so spot on true. And I want us to take our cue from the scripture. Please understand my heart today. This is not a beat down on you. I'm not even thinking about anybody else. I'm thinking about my own self. And I'm thinking about what the Lord wants to do even in our midst. And I'm thinking, how can I help to partner with this? And how can I keep a, a rein upon this thing? And how many times has the Lord said to me, this is what you're doing? And this is what I want you to do. Chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. See this theme run all the way through. The biggest thing that Paul's chasing in Corinth. And this was his problem child as a church. The church in Corinth was Paul's problem child. There's churches in the New Testament that Paul founded and started Berea and other places where he went there, established a church, got it established for a few months, came back once in six years and never saw him again. Because they were doing well and walking in a spirit of unity. And God's spirit was having his way. Corinth, on the other hand, they were a problem. They couldn't get it together in their community. So chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, then we're going to go to chapter 11, to a familiar passage that we very often um, read wrongly, I believe. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless? What's he talking about? What we call communion, what we call the Lord's Supper. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? That word sharing there is koinonia. Here's the amazing thing about koinonia. It always means that there is a, an exchange. There's a transfer of something valuable from one party to the other. These, these two verses here to me are the strongest evidence in the New Testament that when we actually partake of the Lord's Supper, He doesn't just want us to go, I do this in remembrance of you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. But that He actually is transferring to us His power and the glory and the life-changing 
essence of what he did when he died for us. Something happens. It's supposed to. Communion is not just supposed to be a little thing that we go through and we go, right, amen. There's something that happens there. It's koinonia. That means God is sharing with us something that happened at the cross in that moment. I don't mean that the bread turns into the literal body of Christ or the cup turns into his literal blood, but something happens. There's a transfer of life that happens. Supposed to. But look at verse 17. All right, let's finish verse 16. Is not the bread which we break a sharing? Again, koinonia. There's a transfer that happens. It's a sharing in the body of Christ. Look at verse 17. This is the meaning. This is part of the meaning of the Lord's Supper that we miss so often. Since there is one bread. What does that mean, Paul, that there's one bread? It means that we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. What is the point of him saying that? He's going to flesh it out here in chapter 11 where we're going to go next. The point of him saying that is, look, when you're getting together and you're sharing the Lord's Supper, something is happening here. But this isn't just a demonstration of what Jesus did to forgive our sins and open up the the veil so we could go into the presence of God, as magnificent as that is. But it also demonstrates that he has torn down every wall of division now. And the body is one body. You're bound together by the DNA of Jesus Christ that you carry in your own spirit when you're born again. You're bound together forever. Look at chapter 11, verse 18. I want to read through this passage. You guys all right? Is everybody hanging in there? Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. Here we go again. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. You guys are telling me that you're coming together to eat the Lord's Supper, but you're actually not. You're playing a different game. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise, look at this, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. What's happening in Corinth? There's a group of richer people that have the houses that they gather in, probably. When they come together, they had a love feast. Most of you guys probably know this. They had a dinner, a meal together. Then they would take the Lord's Supper after that as part of that meal. But you had rich people who had lots of resource. They had better food. And then the Greek literally says the have-nots. So it's the haves and the have-nots. It literally says that. So there's those who have resource, but when they come together, they're sitting there eating all they want, and they go, oh, we've got our picnic basket, guys. Sorry, you don't have anything. Sorry, you guys don't have anything. They're sitting over there gorging themselves, drinking their wine to the point of getting drunk. But here are the other brothers and sisters coming into the room to share the love feast. Oh, we just love you. I just love you, brother. Just really love you. Really love you, man. I love you. Paul's like... No, you, you, 
You, you don't even get it. You're defying the whole purpose of the, of the feast and of the Lord's Supper because it's supposed to demonstrate that the body is one body. You're bound together. That bread, when you break it, that means you're one because Jesus has made you one and that unity cannot be compromised. So because of social distinctions, they're dividing when they're eating the Lord's Supper and Paul's beside himself ready to pull his hair out and scream. You're not even taking the Lord's Supper. What are you doing? Let's read on through. This is really weighty stuff. In your eating, verse 21, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat or drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? I will not. Verse 23, for I received of the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 28. But a man... Sorry, 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. I want to show you clearly in this context, the unworthy manner is that they weren't honoring their brothers and sisters as being one with them. They broke off the oneness in shaming and contempting the other members of the body of Christ. That's what the unworthy manner is. I'll show you that. The passage clearly says it. They shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. How many are okay with that? This is weighty. I'm telling you, for Paul, this is weighty. For God, this is weighty. 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. He just said in chapter 10, the one loaf means that we're one body together. I'll show you this. Let's read on down through the end of the chapter. Then I'll make some observations. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. What does weak and sick mean? They're weak and sick. What does a number sleep mean? They're dead. Is that not weighty to you? God is bringing judgment in your midst. Why is he doing it? Because you guys aren't treating each other right. You come together for the Lord's Supper. You're pretending that you're a follower of Jesus and that you're honoring his sacrifice. And when you dishonor each other, you're actually dishonoring his sacrifice. Super weighty. That's what this passage says. Verse, let's read on through to the end of the chapter, and you'll see that very clearly. For he who eats, 29, eats and drinks, Judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak, sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Hallelujah. Judgment's not God's best, but it beats going to hell. So then, my brethren, when you gather together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. 
if you contempt and dishonor one another when you're coming together for the Lord's Supper, it is such an egregious offense to the Father that we violate the oneness and the unity that he brings judgment upon his own people to save their soul from hell. I don't know if that strikes you as being as weighty as it strikes me. Chapter 3, if anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Chapter 11, if you fail to rightly discern the body, that it is your brother and sister. The body is your brother and sister who are sitting next to you, who irritate you and get under your skin and have their own quirks and pray too loud and yell when they preach. You're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. Do, do you think that in the way that we operate today in the body of Christ, that we are inviting the judgment of God on us for contempting other members of the body? All I need to do is read two pages of internet posts, and I'm scared. I'm afraid. Just in case you think this is only my opinion, I'm a teacher, so I have resources. I could give you 10 or 12 top-level scholars that will tell you this, but I'm just going to read you two, okay? How many of you are okay? Everybody doing all right? We're getting ready to land the plane here in just a minute. Let me, let me just read this. This is Gordon Fee, one of the top New Testament scholars in the world. The unworthy eating of verse 27 that brings judgment is now described as eating without discerning the Lord's body meaning the church, as in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 7, which we read, this, after all, is the point of the whole section. The salvation Jesus has wrought through his death was intended to make them one, not divided. All the evidence seems to point in this direction. The Lord's Supper is not just any meal. It is the meal in which, at a common table, with one loaf and a common cup, they proclaimed that through the death of Christ, they were one body, the body of Christ, of which they all are parts and in which they all are gifts to one another. To fail to discern the body in this way is to incur God's judgment. This is, I'll read you a shorter one now. This is Craig Blomberg, another world-class New Testament scholar. I could, I could give you 12 or 15, all right? I'm just giving you two. You're welcome. Many Christians have entirely missed the real meaning of these threats, which, as we have seen, are directed against those who are not adequately loving their Christian brothers or sisters and providing for their physical and material needs. That absolutely is what that pastor says. It's bracketed. Paul puts in the instruction on the Lord's Supper in the midst of his discussion on divisions in the body and how we have to fix that. This last week, I read 34 pages of the mandate from Governor DeSantis about how to deal with the COVID-19 virus so we could try to stay within that mandate. But I want to tell you something. There is a king of heaven who has made mandates. And do we give a rip about what he said about how we're supposed to operate ourselves in this body? Sorry, that was a little edgy. 
Does it matter to us as much? Are we studying that as much as six-foot distancing, measuring tape? I, I get that. I'm not mocking it. I'm just saying there is a king in heaven who has given mandate after mandate on how we are supposed to treat each other and live in community together. And is that on our mind to where we're going to operate within that mandate of the king of heaven? These are not suggestions. They're mandates. I'm not going to read them all. There's multitudes of them. But you probably know there's multitudes of one another verses in the New Testament. By my own count, there's more than 70. Here's some of them. Nineteen times the king of heaven mandated, love your brother and sister. Not only love them, but love them with the love where which I've loved you. Not only love them with the love that I've loved you, but love them intensely and fervently from the heart. It's a mandate from heaven. Nineteen times. Do you think Jesus forgets his, his place in his speech? That's why he says it over and over again. On the night before he went to the cross, he said it at least five times in the same room to the same disciples. You think he lost his place and lost his notes? No, he's emphasizing. Guys, listen. You don't know what's about to hit you. But this, this you've got to get this in your head. You have got to love and serve one another as I have modeled for you when I washed your feet tonight. You have to do that. That's not optional. Five times in the New Testament, we hate this. It commands us as believers to greet one another with a kiss. No, we never do that. I won't pass social distancing. I get it. That's just cultural, brother. Okay, what does it mean, though? What do you kiss? What things do you kiss? What people do you kiss? Anybody ever kissed a bag boy at Publix afterwards? Oh, thank you so much. I just love you. What do you kiss? Why did he command us five times in the New Testament to kiss each other when we greet? What is it supposed to express? I've seen people kiss animals over and over again, which is not my thing. But I'll let it be your thing if it is your thing. I've seen lots of mamas kiss their babies. I've seen lots of grandmas kiss their babies over and over again. I've seen husbands and wives kiss each other. I've even seen really close friends kiss each other. I've seen people kiss money before. I had a guy who worked with on a job site one time. We're talking about the Lord. He pulls out a roll this thick of $100 bills wrapped around each other and says, this is my God. Kisses his wad of money. I said, well, Orville, what if you're wrong? And when you're taking your last breath, where's your God going to be? And he said, then I'll be in a world of hurt, won't I? I said, yeah, you will. I've seen bodybuilders, Willie, kiss their biceps. Why do we kiss things? Because it, we kiss things that are precious to us. 
Why are we commanded in the New Testament five times? Not once. If it was once, we could say, well, that wasn't in the original manuscript. So that Five times he made sure, no, you're going to kiss, 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 kiss. Why does he do that? Because he, okay, you don't like to kiss. I'm all good with that. But what is the meaning behind it? He is telling us when you greet one another, you need to express that my brothers and sisters are precious to me. You're precious to me. You're not just somebody that I attend the Rotary Club with, but you're precious to me and I care about your life. This is a mandate from the king. Six times in the New Testament letters, he commands us to embrace and accept one another, even though we have differences of opinion about things. Seven times he commands us to encourage one another, to lift each other up and to build one another up. Four times he commands us to be humble and to take the low road. Five times he commands us to serve one another. Four times he commands us to be one with each other in unity. And four times he commands us to forgive each other the same way that he forgave us. What are we doing with the mandates of the king of heaven? Can, can you be honest with me and say that we fall really short of following his mandates, that like we're pretty careless with them? Some of us get really uh, <clears throat> irate and aggravated, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> it's not COVID, with our brothers and sisters because they're not meticulously keeping the mandates of the government, which I believe we're trying to do that. Understand me. But what about the king of heaven and his mandates over us as his people? Are we careless about those? What are we doing with his mandates? Derek, can you come up? I want to just take a few minutes, and here's what I want to do. Y'all, I got a little riled up and a little fired up about this and a little wired about it. You know that. That's not un unusual for me. But, but I feel this deep in my gut. And I have this groan inside of me that knows that God wants to come in so many greater ways. I'm not okay. I'm so thankful for all that he's doing and all that he's done. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm not okay with where we're at right now. I'm not okay with the measure of the manifested presence of God and with the moving of the Holy Spirit. I'm not okay with that. I don't believe God's okay with it either. Here's the, here's the question. What are we going to do? I'm saying I believe with all of my heart and soul that the wineskin is the community. There is no other because it is the temple. That is what holds and houses the presence of God. So I want us just to take a few minutes. If you're in a home, awesome. Let's just take a few minutes to wait on the Lord. I want to encourage us to do a few things. Please don't just jump out and run. I know it's late. First, let's repent. Let's repent for any way that we have caused division in the body and have dishonored other members of the body of Christ. Let's repent. Let's plead for God to give us his heart for his body and to view it the way that he does. And let's ask him 
I want you to do this. Please hear me. Let's ask him thirdly to give us action points that we can put into operation, that he can put people in our mind, that he can put things in our mind that we can actually do to help be part of the answer of building the unity and the oneness of the body of Christ that Jesus gave his life for. Our view of church in some ways is radically different than the New Testament view. Our view of church is that we're going to come together. We want to sense the presence of God. We want him to deliver us from our issues. And then we want to go on and live our individualistic life apart from one another, apart from deep relationship, apart from real intense love that invades our space. And it's not God's way. He's not going to come on our terms, I can tell you. He won't. But he will come on the terms that he set. Let's be part of the answer. Let's just take a little time. If you want to come up here, you can. If you want to just kneel at your chair, you can. But let's earnestly go after God and ask him how we can become part of the answer to this issue of oneness in his body.